handout. If you don't have a handout, they're on the back table there. And let me grab the right notes. Okay, here we go. All right, chapter four in our book on church membership, what are a church and its members like? See the quote there, when you open up the Bible and read what God says about the church, you find yourself staring at one big mixed metaphor. We read that the church is, and I suppose we could quibble with this, technically it's a simile when you use the word like, but we won't go into that. <laughs> we read that the church is like a body, a flock of sheep, branches of a vine, a bride, a temple, God's building, a people, exiles, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, salt of the earth, the Israel of God, the elect lady, and on and on. And so, have you ever found yourself, uh, Paul does this a lot in his epistles, have you ever found yourself, um, speaking of Paul, I'm just going to pull up Zoom in case he or Tina is trying to get on because he may still be sick. Sorry about that. <laughs> Not the Apostle Paul, the Hessler Paul. Um, do you ever read through particularly Paul's letters and notice how he changes really fast from one, one illustration to the next? And do you ever find that a little bit confusing, potentially, if you don't stop and think about what it is that he's actually saying? And so I think that's the point that's being made here. There's all of these different illustrations of what the church is supposed to be like. And when we see all of these, it's easy for us to think um, they're confusing or what do they mean or all of those sorts of things. And I think it's important for us to stop and think, consider what they actually mean. So he says this, Jesus' kingdom really is a kingdom. He does rule his people. Now, again, there's that whole discussion of whether Jesus' kingdom is entirely future, somewhat future, not future at all, more of a symbolic kind of a thing. Aside from that discussion, the reality is that Jesus does actually rule in some way, right? So I think that's very clear from the New Testament. Jesus is not just Savior, but he's also Lord. And so the fact that he's Lord means that he's Lord over who? His people and particularly in connection with the church. He's the head of the church. So, in contrast, the church is not really a human body. I think we understand this, right? No one is actually the big toe. No one is actually the ear, right? But these are helpful illustrations of things about the church. Um, not a human body, a bride in a dress, a temple made of bricks, a family of biologically related individuals, and so forth. These are metaphors, what a church and its members are like. Again, metaphor is when you say, God is a rock. Simile is when you say, God is like a rock. Both are getting at the same idea, comparing God to a rock, right? How are these metaphors helpful, though? Why is it helpful to think of the church as a building that is being constructed, for example? Bob? The only way we can truly relate to it, since God is so far beyond us. Okay. Jonathan, you had one? Oh, okay, sorry. Caught movement out of the corner of my eye. I wasn't sure what it was. Okay. Uh, how about the one about a human body? Why is that helpful in understanding what the church is? Okay, yeah, the fact that we're interconnected. If you have a body, can you have a toe that's not on a foot? Yeah, it happens sometimes. Is it still doing what it's supposed to do? Nope. And 
not for very long if it stays off, right? Um, how about the illustration of a bride like we see in Ephesians 5? Why is that illustration helpful or is it helpful in thinking about what the, uh, what the church is like? So each of these is illustrating something different about the church, right? Here's the way the, the author went at it, and I think we're kind of getting at the same ideas. Each one has a job to do for describing something about our union in the church. To describe the church as a family is to speak about its relational intimacy and shared identity. So if you have a family, each of you is a little bit different, right? Well, you've got a lot of common background, right? There is a, I wouldn't say an unbreakable bond, because there are families that have huge rifts and never get back together, but there is a unique and enduring bond between members of a family that is different from people who are not part of a family, right? So, um, and ironically, there's some parallels to some of the things we were talking about before, right? Can you discipline your kids? Yes. Can you discipline the kids of a random person who's not disciplining theirs at the store? Probably not, right? <laughs> same, kind of, uh, same kind of illustration with the church, right? That's what we were talking about before. There's a scope of authority. There's a nature of connection. So there is the relational intimacy. There's the shared identity. Here's what our family is about. Um, here's this strong bond between one another. And so when we come to the church and we say that the church is a family, we're saying that same sort of thing. There's a bond through one spirit baptized into one body, uh, believing the same faith of the gospel, the same identity, similar purpose to share the gospel, to edify one another, do all the one another ministries. So all those things, that's a helpful illustration of one aspect of what the church is supposed to be. Um, then to call it a body is to say that its members are mutually dependent but have different roles. And this is where I think pride kind of sabotages our perspective on the church, but bringing it back to these biblical illustrations is really helpful. Uh, there's a degree to which the reason that Corinth was such a mess is everybody wanted to be the one who was in the focus, right? So everybody wanted to be the one that was up there speaking in tongues, and people said, wow, they're speaking in tongues, and so let's everybody speak in tongues. And Paul specifically says, some of you are never going to speak in tongues, Stop chasing after that. In fact, instead of exalting the person that's speaking in tongues and has to have an interpreter, exalt the person who's doing prophecy and speaking forth God's word. And again, there's two aspects of prophecy. There is the telling of the future, revealing things that were not yet known. And we tend to fixate on that aspect of prophecy. But I think Paul's emphasis was even more than that. Speak what is true about God to other people. And that you can do whether there's someone to interpret or not in the church at Corinth. And that, that you can do... 
with anybody and it's a really important thing and stop acting like it's the last thing that you should want to do. But the reason that they had that flawed perspective was because they forgot each person has this unique role in the context of the church, just like you need a hand and a foot and an eye and a spine and all these other parts of the body. They just ignored all that and said, everybody's going to be the head. And um, yeah, so that was not an appropriate way of looking at things. To refer to it, the church, as the temple of the Spirit is to say that God specifically identifies himself and dwells with these people. So there's all that stuff that we looked at in Exodus and in Hebrews and all those sorts of things that Jesus dwells with God. Jesus is this connection point between God and his people. Going back to Exodus, God came and actually made his presence known in the tabernacle and then in the temple. And before that, in the pillar of cloud and fire, God was actually with his people. And then when we take all of that imagery and we say, you are the temple of God, we say, wow, that is true individually and distributively and collectively. So that's what I mean by this. We sometimes think your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit as like, God lives inside my body, so I should take care of it because he wants to not live in a rundown temple. That's not entirely false, but there's a whole lot more than what we see here, right? So it's a whole lot less about getting tattoos and all that sort of thing and eating the right food, although I would argue probably you don't need to get a tattoo and we probably should eat the right food, but it's not really about that. It's about the purity aspect of it, right? Don't, God doesn't want sin in the temple in which he's dwelling, so don't sin with your body, particularly when it comes to sins like adultery and all those other related kinds of sins, because then you're sinning against your body, which means you're defiling God's temple, which means if God is dwelling within you, he's not pleased with what you're doing, right? So that's the individual part of it. You also have sort of this distributive part of it. If each of us individually is the temple of God, then that means that God is within all of us no matter where we are, right? There's that idea that we see sometimes in the scripture. But then the other one that I think we see even more clearly alongside that God dwells in you individually is that God dwells among you collectively. And so there is a sense in which when we gather as God's people on a Sunday morning and worship, God dwells among us collectively having gathered and that is whether we are in this building or standing in a field somewhere or at somebody's house, that is God in his temple, which is his people who are living stones being built up to be an appropriate dwelling place for his presence. So that's why that illustration is important of the, the temple that's being constructed. Uh, you see that in First Peter, Ephesians, a few other places. The language of vine and branch communicates the church's dependence on Jesus and his word for its life. I did a lot of cleaning uh, stuff out of my yard in the last few weeks. And what do you see when you look at your yard after winter if you didn't get to it in the fall? A lot of dead sticks, right? Now, some of that is because that's just what some of those plants do, but some of that is because as things get broken off, they have no source of life anymore, right? So a stick falls off of the tree, we can argue about whether it was dead and then it fell off the tree or whether it's dead because it fell off the tree. The reality is when it's laying on the ground and all dried out, it's dead regardless of the order of things, right? And so you can't just say, oh, here's this stick. I'm just going to duct tape it to the tree and everything's good, right? Because it's dead. In the same way, we don't have spiritual life unless we're connected with Jesus. And so this illustration of the church being branches connected with Christ who is the vine is really important. 
We're actually going to see that even in the passage later this morning where it talks about dead sticks being broken off because they're stubborn people who don't discern God and don't follow after him. And I think there it's probably talking more about Gentiles, but Paul reuses that illustration to talk about the Israelites later on, right? So, how do these different perspectives on what the church is like affect how we interact in the church? So if the church is a family, how does that affect how we do church on a Sunday morning? Is it movie theater or family reunion? Right, so movie theater, what do you do? You come, you watch a thing, and you leave hoping that the popcorn was good and you were entertained, right? Family reunion, you come, see the kids sticking their fingers in the pumpkin pie and say, I'm going to have this other thing. No. Uh, you come, you spend time with people, you visit with them, you encourage them, you leave having accomplished something real, hopefully, by having attended, right? You go to the movie theater, nothing real has actually happened. You have experienced a thing, but the experience of it is a shadow of the reality, right? You haven't actually fought a battle. You haven't actually driven really fast in and out of all the traffic, right? You just kind of watched ideas of things, right? But when you come and gather with God's people, it should be an actual participation in real things that have eternal impact on, on real people that God has put around you. Okay, so what about if we say that the church is a body? How does that affect how we come to church and interact with each other? Norma? So we're gathering collectively to worship and praise God. Good, Bob. Sure. Jonathan, you had one? Going to the next step of that is that, like with a human body, if you have a foot or an arm or a hand or whatever, you're interconnected. And without one, the first one can't do the thing that it wants to do in many cases. So with us, we may need someone else to accomplish a task. Okay. If we're by ourselves, it's going to be very challenging. We may not be able to do it. So we need each other to accomplish something. Yeah, and if I could springboard off of that, I think in a lot of churches there's the idea that the pastor is supposed to do everything. And I don't say this because I'm trying to be lazy. I say this because I think this is God's vision for the church. I should not be doing everything in the church. I should be equipping all of us to do what God wants us to do. Because there are things that I am not good at, and there are things that, quite frankly, I necessarily probably shouldn't be good at, right? But God has equipped different people in the church to fill all those roles. And so if any one person says, I'm the one who's going to do all this stuff, then that's an unhealthy thing for the church, along the lines of what you all are saying, to gather to worship, to appreciate each individual role, to, um, to say we need each other, and then to say, yeah, it's not just any one person that's doing all these things. Again, going back to the church of Corinth, that was the problem. They wanted like, here's our guy, and he's the guy who does all the things. And so then it was all these factions. No, it was supposed to be everyone collectively working together. What about the perspective of the temple of the Spirit? How does that affect how we gather on a Sunday morning, for example, or even on a Wednesday night? 
When you pray for one another? Okay. I also need to pray as one. There needs to be a degree of unity. What else? If God sees us as his temple, how does that affect you showing up on Sunday? Rob? You want to be in God's presence. Okay. Because he's with us when more than two of us are gathered. Yeah. Okay. Want to be in God's presence when there's a gathering of, you know, two or three in his name? Okay. What else? I was thinking of an analogy. Okay. Kind of like you're um, going to start a fire. Mm-hmm. And you have a bunch of sticks or sticks or whatever. And you start a little fire on one corner, but it's going to take a long time for it to catch hold. It might even go out. Okay. Now, if you start fires in little places all over, then you're more likely to have a successful fire. Okay. Like us, I mean, if we get together, we encourage each other, and the Holy Spirit can work better through it. Okay, yeah. And that's sort of the difference between the attitude of, I heard a guy on TV at home, so I'm good, versus there is something about personal interconnection that accomplishes and pushes forward what God's doing. Good. Um, okay, he says next, we need all these images for describing a church and its members. Unhealthy churches, even denominations, are sometimes the result of church leaders who have picked their favorite metaphors. They become all intimacy, family, or all hierarchy, body. Before we get to that, let me read one other thing that I skipped over. The institutional view needs to be complemented by an organic view. If we stopped with what we looked at last week, just the commitment aspect of church membership, it would be like saying a marriage is the marital covenant, and then it doesn't matter what happens after that. None of the activities are important, right? And so that's why we're talking about all these things, because we're moving from the common bond, the shared commitment, the initial part of it, to what does that then look like in day-to-day -day life. So, uh, on this idea of how picking one or another of these metaphors skews things, how would it change our perspective if we ignored all of the metaphors except the church is a place where we gather and God's Spirit is among us once a week. If that's our idea of the church, nothing else, how does that affect how we do church? Bob? Affects the rest of the week. What do we do when we're not here? Okay. Yeah, we might not see the importance at all of any interaction with people from church outside of that one gathering a week, right? Anything else on that one? We're missing out on the benefits of Yeah, I mean, obviously the point of the gathering is to be about God. But if we make it only about God in the sense that we think that there's no horizontal component to our ministry, then we're missing out on a lot of what the New Testament calls us to do, right? Um, what was the... Um, there's one other thing I was thinking of in connection with this. If our goal is to see God's presence and God's... Um, like just the worship idea, there could easily be sort of a twisted approach that says our only goal is to make the gathering bigger because then somehow we're making God's worship bigger, right? 
without saying here is what is true and important and what we're supposed to be considering about God. I just, I think a lot, what I'm trying to say is I think a lot of the people that have gone what was called 20 years ago was the seeker-sensitive idea is we think that God is important and we want lots of people to know about him. And so because the church is a place where God is worshipped, let's get everybody in here so they can sort of participate in this worship of God without any consideration for the fact of can people who don't know God really even worship him, right? And so this push to get more and more people and sort of this superficial approach to say, well, now we have lots of people and lots of people are singing praise to God and lots of people are here, it's easy for someone to then equate a large gathering with a, a, a good and pure and acceptable worship to God. Does that, does that make any sense what I'm trying to say? I'm, I'm not saying that if you have a church of 500 people, it's evil. I'm just saying the path of how you get there can potentially be very driven by what your picture of the church is. Um, what about if we say the church is just a family? Yeah, and I do think it's interesting that there's not a, there's not a, uh, how do I put it? There's not a complex hierarchy in the New Testament. So this idea of, um, I don't know, like a bishopric and cardinals above that and a pope above that and like all of these levels of hierarchy, I don't think we see that in the New Testament. So if there is a church who says, we think that the hierarchy is flatter, like we don't think that there is one pastor, we think that there is a group of three or four guys who are going to lead us in worship and point us to God's word, I don't think that that would necessarily be unbiblical as long as there is a recognition of some of the other things associated with it. Um, but then, obviously, if we say, well, nobody's in charge, we're all equals, there's no authority whatsoever, we're just a family, well, even that pushes it beyond the family imagery because even in a family you have parents who are overseeing the spiritual good of the family and all those sorts of things. But you don't have, I mean, at least in our culture, you don't have parents and then like super parents and then like the head parent over the super parents, right? And so, again, just, and maybe I'm getting too far afield from some of these things, but the point is this. If you pick one of these metaphors and you hang on to it, you get off in the wrong place. Just like if you pick one thing that's true about God. God is love. Absolutely. But if you then twist that to say, and God doesn't care about what you do, that's not biblical. Or God is justice. True. But if you then twist that to say, and God is just, he's after you, he's after you, he's after you, and there's no love and compassion, God is extraordinarily merciful towards sinners. And we need a well-rounded picture of God, just like we need a well-rounded picture of the church. So then if we look on the next, uh, the next page, we already talked about the question. He says next, each of these metaphors gets put into practice locally. So, in the lo is there a universal church? Absolutely. There's a sense in which missionaries in India and in um, all of the other places, Brazil, and all the other places they are around the world, are they part of God's church right now? Yes, but it's really difficult for me to connect with um, Saji and Fleissi 
in a way that meaningfully accomplishes a lot of the things the New Testament causes us to do. Can we pray for them? Yes. Can we walk up to them each Sunday and say, hey, I'm praying for you? No. Can we send them an email? Sure. But is that the same thing? Not really, right? And so the personal connection aspects of a lot of these one another ministries really require some sort of local, immediate, regular gathering to be worked out properly, I think. So, this raises an interesting question for me, which is not so much something that's in the book, although he touches on it a little bit. Does this mean that every gift and needed part is found in every local assembly? So, first of all, let's back up and say, what are spiritual gifts? What are some examples of spiritual gifts? Preaching, Preaching, teaching, something like that. Okay, what else? Serving. Serving, okay. Potentially something like generosity or giving. Uh, Potentially something like hospitality. I mean, in the early church, there was a whole bunch of ones like... um, Tongues, prophecy, healing, all of those sorts of things. Um, That's a whole other subject. I'm just listing all the ones off. It's really interesting that the three places where spiritual gifts are listed in the New Testament all are different, which to me implies that they're perhaps not exhaustive lists, but examples of some of the things that God would do. And so, essentially, it is God taking sometimes natural abilities, but sometimes even things that we weren't necessarily good at before, but had the potential to do in God's power, uh, and then saying, all right, how am I going to use this specifically in the context of the local church? So someone might be good at teaching, but I don't know that we would say they had the gift of teaching if they just go and teach at a school and never use it to serve in church, right? That's not what's in view here. Um, Could it then, in time, could God convict them and say, I need to use this in the context of the church? Sure. But if they're not actively using it in service to the church, it's not, at the very least, being used as a spiritual gift, even if it is some sort of gifting or ability. Um, So we have this idea of spiritual gifts. So the question, the first question would be, in every church, do you always have someone who can teach, help, serve, show hospitality, be generous, and so forth? Absolutely, but in every church, do you always have all of them? No. So, for example, um, and this is, I'm trying to be careful here because I'm not trying to be proud in what I'm saying. I think the reason that you all asked me to come here is because you felt like you needed someone to teach and to lead the church, right? So at least for that duration, there was a sense that we're lacking in one of these spiritual gifts. My argument against what he says, he basically has this idea of, Every, every church has everything that they need. I'm not convinced that that's always true. Does God give you enough to make the church work? Yes. But at the same time, I think if we say the church always has everything that they always need, I think sometimes that then pushes people to do something that God has not gifted them at. And I want to be careful here, right? Because you can have you know, no one necessarily has the gift of setting up chairs, right? That's something we all collectively do together, right? Uh, some people may be a whole lot better at being organized in how that process goes, right? That, that's fine. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, um, I was trying to get in, I think. Um, what I'm trying to say is, 
there needs to be a degree of cultivating, looking for people that God would add to the assembly, praying for people with a particular gift that we perhaps lack. And this is probably something I think you're more keenly aware of in a smaller assembly. In a larger assembly, the issue is not so much, do you have people with these gifts? It's, are they using them? Because a lot of people tend to sit on the sidelines, right? In a smaller assembly, the issue is sometimes you genuinely lack one of these areas. And so we try to fill in and close the gap. But sometimes we need to pray for God to bring someone to do those things. Okay? Um, connected with that, uh, the idea of needed part is, I think, tied to the spiritual gifts, but that illustration of the body, right? Hand and foot and mouth and all those other sorts of things. Um, I think, again, there's potentially a sense that we, we just sort of expect that every church will have all of those things, but there may be a reality in which a church is kind of like someone who's missing one of their limbs. They're missing a hand. They're missing a foot. They're missing an eye or an ear. Again, what should our response be? Not to try to manufacture that in ourselves, but to pray that God would close that gap. And this is a way that I think we tend not to really think about the church. We just assume, well, yeah, spiritual gifts, and yeah, every church has them, and yeah, we don't need to worry about it. And so then sometimes the focus is, what's mine? Which is fine. We should consider it. Um, But even beyond that, then we don't pray for God to close those gaps because we just sort of assume we have everything that we need. Jonathan? Instead of necessarily having to look outside the church? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and it can, it can be maybe a little bit of a both end, and that's where, um, you know, one of my goals or burdens would be that, you know, theoretically in time, perhaps God would work in such a way that, you know, we have people like, you know, Tim Feiblick who came and filled in on Wednesday nights, or all the different pastors who came and filled in for pulpit supply when I wasn't able to be here last year that we would have people that we could say, hey, your, your church needs to... So I guess what I'm thinking is God can bring new members in. God can use sort of the networks of relationships between churches to close some of those gaps. And to your point, yes, if we cultivate people who are already in the assembly, then God can develop those things. And I think the verse that ties in really well with that is Paul says to Timothy, stir up the gift that's in you, right? He doesn't just say, you've got it, you use it, awesome, you never have to think about it again. He says, stir it up and work at it and and develop it, right? And that's true not just of something like preaching and teaching, but also true of a whole bunch of other things. Because, I mean, someone who who has the gift of generosity might need direction or help from someone coming alongside who says, hey, be generous, but here's how you can be even more strategic in your generosity. Or, be generous, but maybe be generous in this way instead of giving this person money because it will help them more. Just all those sorts of things, right? And, uh, and there's lots of different ways that that cultivating can happen that you're talking about. So then how do we fulfill the one another commands in the local assembly in a different way than you know, with somebody in another country? 
So admonish one another. What would that look like for me trying to do it with one of the missionaries? It'd be really challenging, right? Because A, I don't know what they're not doing well, practically, because I don't, I mean, I see what they put in their newsletters, but typically don't put in a newsletter, and here is how I was angry with everyone this week, right? Because you want people to keep giving you money, and that looks bad, and I'm not saying they're lying, I'm just saying, kind of like when you post something on Facebook, you know, here's the amazing project that we did this week. Yeah, you don't show how the 16 times it failed before it looked amazing, right? Um, so, it's really challenging to do with somebody who's far away, right? What does it look like to admonish each other on a Sunday morning? It could be as simple as someone walks in and has an angry expression on her, on her face, his face, whatever, and you walk up and you say, hey, what's going on? And if the response is, ah, I just had this really difficult week, and would you pray for me? Fine. There's not maybe a huge spiritual problem. But if the response is nothing, then you maybe you know that there's something that you need to probe a little bit further about, right? Uh, my point is, there's all these things God has called the church to do. They have to be worked out in the local assembly on a regular basis. So when you come to church, think about it as, I'm coming to church not just to watch but I'm coming to church and there's got to be at least one person typically every week that God wants me to do one of these one another things for. Pray for, admonish, encourage, whatever, right? So then number four here. The metaphors aren't really metaphors, but shadows. What I think he's trying to get at with that, and let me you know, turn to this page here and make sure I'm not misrepresenting things, but this idea of... Um, of shadows is kind of the point that um, he, he, he turns to Ephesians chapter 5. He says Paul's talking about marriage, but then he unexpectedly changes the subject. He says marriage refers to Christ in the church. Marriage is a symbol or shadow of Christ in the church. We get it backward if we think that marriage is the reality and that Christ's love for the church is a symbol of marriage. It's as if God, before he created the world, said to himself, how can I weave into the fabric of creation a symbol or shadow of my son's covenant love for the church? How can I proclaim this universally so that everyone sees it and realizes they are standing in the shadow of something very big? Answer, he created marriage. It's the shadowy outline that points to the real reality, Christ in the church. The same is true, I believe, for all the biblical metaphors for the church. They're the shadows of something even greater. Think also of Paul's reference to the Heavenly Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Ephesians 3.15 God placed earthly fathers on earth so that all of the world would have a shadowy outline of what our relationship with the Heavenly Father is to be like. Why do you think God has created brothers and sisters? Again, so that everyone gets a dim sense of the true reality that begins now in the local church and awaits us completely in glory. What about branches on the vine? It gives us a dim picture of our dependence and the word of life, the word of Christ. I trust that in glory, our utter, complete, and total dependence on him will become even plainer. Even Old Testament metaphors for the church, like the temple, though pointing backward to the life of Israel, also point forward to greater realities in the age to come. So what are some of these greater realities that life in the church is pointing to? I touched on a few of them just now, but what are some of these... True. Let's explore that a little more. So we're depending on Jesus. So the branches in the vine, 
What is that pointing to in the future? What greater reality? To be with him, right? Kind of similarly with the idea of the temple being built up. We, God is actually with us and we are like a temple, but in eternity, God will be with us face to face and we will worship him in a far more complete and true way than we're able to even now, even though what we're doing now can be good and, and proper and all of that, right? Um, what, and this idea of family, right? We can have good and God-honoring relationships in the context of the church that are like a family, right? But the same thing that's true of families is also true in the church, which is those relationships are skewed by sin. They're, they're tainted by sin, and it points to the reality that someday we will actually be able to dwell with one another in perfect unity not just between us and God, but between us and other people. But right now we have a shadow and an anticipation of that in when God describes the church as a family, right? Um, and then, I'm trying to think of one of the other ones. Bob, go ahead. Well, just, we are to be a reflection of him, just like the marriage is a reflection of him in the church. Our lives are to be a reflection of his character. Yeah, Okay. And in heaven they will be, because we'll, it, it, there's that verse that says, when we see him, we'll be like him, because we'll know him as he is, something along those lines, right? Um, what about the one about the body, all these different roles? Even if, as I just argued, potentially a local assembly is lacking in someone to do all of the different things that God wants done, when we are in his presence for all eternity, is there going to be any lack in what God wants done? No. There might be 500 people to do each thing that God wants done in eternity, right? Or more, right? Whereas now, you know, in a church of 40 or 50 people, there might be lack, right? And so these are, these are shadows, imperfect pictures of what is to be someday, and even what God may be continuing to do and build and grow things toward in the future, even in our assembly, right? Um, he talks uh, at the end here about 12 reasons that membership matters. And this is kind of how he, kind of a transition or a, uh, I don't know what you want to call it. Um, anyways, these are his reasons why I think membership is important. And as we talked about before, when we say membership, we're not necessarily talking specifically about do you have a logbook, do you have a database, do you have something posted on the wall in an office, we're saying the concept of a deep and abiding commitment and responsibility between each other, between the leadership and the members, between the members and the leadership, all in service to God. Okay? First reason, he says, membership matters is because it is biblical. Well, I mean, you would hope that's the case. And if that's true, then that's a big reason that it matters, right? Because if it's unbiblical, it shouldn't matter at all to us, right? And if it's extra-biblical, it should matter not very much, right? So there can be things that are extra-biblical that are not sinful. So, for example, something that might be extra-biblical would be, uh, when we observe the Lord's table, do we use plastic cups or real ones? doesn't say. I mean, that's an extra-biblical kind of a thing. Is it something that we should spend a great deal of time arguing about? No, Right? Is it unbiblical? I don't think it's unbiblical, but it's extra-biblical. But something that's clearly biblical is the fact of observing the Lord's table, right? In the same way, 
is the local church biblical and is this sense of shared responsibility and commitment biblical? I think we can say yes, right? Different from church to church, but the core concept itself is biblical. The second thing he says, why membership matters, is that the church is its members. Would you agree with that statement? The church is its members? Um, I think he would be saying people who've committed to be a part of the church, but if that if they've committed to be a part of the church, is the church its members as opposed to a building or an abstract idea? I think it would say it is its members. Now, is there a whole lot of other things we could say? Yes, but that statement, I think, taken in the context that he's saying it, I think we'd say is probably true. Is membership a prerequisite for the Lord's Supper? At the very least, belief and baptism in the New Testament is a prerequisite for remembering Christ's death as someone who's experienced it, because if you haven't believed and been baptized, you don't really have a connection with Jesus, right? I mean, that's pretty much the way the New Testament lays it out. So again, do, does a church have to do, can a church do open communion versus closed communion versus closed communion, which is what we've been doing lately? Can they do it in one of those three ways and still reflect this? Potentially, but at the very least, there needs to be an awareness that this is something for believers, right? Not just for anybody, right? Um, membership matters, he would say here, because it's how you officially represent Jesus. And that whole idea of authorization and being recognized as part of the assembly and then in turn recognizing others as part of the assembly, is membership important for sort of knowing who's in and who's out? Whatever it looks like, yes, right? Uh, it's how you declare your highest allegiance. So if someone says, well, I'm not a member, and I just sort of go from this place to this place to this place, that's not really reflecting the sort of commitment, I think, that God wants us to have to the church, right? The whole church hopping idea. And so some serious commitment to a local assembly, I think, does fulfill that goal. It's how you embody and experience biblical images. So all these pictures of things. We have said the way that that happens is in the local church, and you need to be a part of that local church to really enter potentially wholeheartedly into all of these things. Um, uh, because, for one, if you show up at a random place, different random place every week, it's pretty difficult for you to really admonish someone. Can you do it? Yes. Can you do it well? Probably not. And so, uh, just all these things to think through. All right, we'll get to the other six, I think, next week. Uh, for sake of time, we'll wrap up there, uh, but we'll close with prayer. Dear God, we thank you for the opportunity to look at these um, truths and think about what they mean for our day-to-day -day life in the church, and pray that we would live these things out in a way that honors you. In Christ's name, amen.